Zila Jameson is a San Francisco Bay Area-based poet, vocalist, musician, and comedian. She is also an MC who has learned from and graced the stage with some of the finest people in entertainment today. She has competed on and or coached 12 national slam teams and has performed poetry and music across three continents. Until she retired in 2014, she hosted and co-produced the Oakland Poetry Slam and Open Mic, an ongoing monthly poetry slam in Oakland, California, as well as performing at venues around the San Francisco Bay Area and the country. She has collaborated on music recording projects with the Rondo Brothers and is embarking upon a career as a stand-up comedian. Her first collection of poetry, Evolutionary Heart, was released by Nomadic Press in the fall of 2016. Nazila is well known and beloved for her work with Spearhead and the French music group Les Nubians, and her love of hip-hop translates onto the stage. You can find out more about her from her website, nazila.com, on Facebook, under her name Nazila. You can also find her videos on YouTube, and you can find her on Instagram at supernaz underscore your underscore superfriend. Welcome, Nazila. Thank you. <laughs> so you're, you're in this call, uh, and you're coming from the Bay Area, and I have mm-hmm. to share, I have to share, you live in one of my favorite spots on the planet, which is Oakland, California, or at least you've been in one of my favorite spots on the planet. And I absolutely love your poem, Ode to Oakland. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was like, I mean, I guess any Oakland person can give their view of what it's like to be in Oakland and be a part of Oakland, but that was certainly like, it made everybody, I think, that heard that or, or reads that will make them feel like they're seeing and smelling and touching Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, so my favorite, the reason why it's one of my favorite places uh, I'll share is because I did live in the Bay Area for two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, a friend of mine was friends with Jamie DeWolf, who does Tourette's Without Regrets. You have performed in that monthly variety show, which is really what it is. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a variety show. And I knew the first moment I stepped foot in that space that I was going to love this show and went back numerous times rap battle like like improvisational rap battles um the the song what do you call it the, the, where you play a song in the beginning and there's 11 people in 10 chairs that's how the show started that oh, night chairs, yeah. <laughs> whoever won got a free beer i mean there <laughs> yes. was so many different things there was burlesque and that was before I, I even started producing burlesque it was it was so amazing and the reason i love oakland so much is because unlike here in New York, or even in San Francisco proper, the peninsula, as great as they are, there's, there's a, a self-segregation that happens. And I think it's because, you know, a bunch of Italians moved to New York and their family did, and now they're all in this block. And mm-hmm. now here's all the, the, you know, the people from Afghanistan are on this block. And, and it, it's not necessarily like, this is our space, stay away. It's just kind of how it happened, perhaps. But Oakland, it seems like it's an intentional thing to ensure that all the cultures are mixing together. And then on the weekends when there are block parties, all the foods are there, all the music is there, all the different types of dance is there. How yeah. do you not fall in love with that? <laughs> right? <laughs> I've heard other people talk about coming to Oakland and just finding the diversity <laughs> in Oakland. Um, yeah, it's just a very comfortable space. Like that's part of the poem is how Oakland made me feel because I live in Berkeley now, but most I've been out in California like 26 years and most of that time I lived in Oakland. And um, 
you know, the whole time I produced the Oakland Poetry Slam, when I was on Oakland Poetry Teams, like I was actually living in Oakland and that's how it made me feel. It was like, you know, going to your cousin's house. Like, you know where everything is, you feel comfortable, whoever comes there, you know, is already like, like you already feel comfortable. It's like a family feeling. Um, and it reminds me, I grew up in the South. And when I first got to Oakland, that's what it reminded me of. It had a Southern like, sort of, you know, hey, how you doing kind of feel, um, where people aren't necessarily trying to, you know, sort of keep a wall around them. It's like, they're doing the opposite. They're actually trying to check you out and see what you're doing. Um, it saddens me that in more recent years, the techies have come. And so Oakland's starting to get gentrified in areas. And it's not necessarily losing that feel, but it's sort of like moving into other parts of Oakland. Like it's kind of, you know, reducing. And the rent is so high that like, I know a lot of artist friends who can't even afford to live in Oakland anymore. So. Yeah, it's kind of changing, but it hasn't yeah. changed yet. We're not, we not giving up without a fight, so, you know. <laughs> Good. So what drew you to Oakland in the, the first place? Um, I, so I grew up in the South. I was born in South Carolina, and I grew up between South Carolina and Georgia. And then as a teenager, I moved to Philly. Um, but I was always drawn to California. Like, when I was four, I remember like I went, I was going to come out to California and be a movie star. And like, it persisted my whole life. Like I was more like the older I got, the more drawn I was to California. And I was determined that I was going to come to California. Um, how I got here though. Um, and it's interesting, you know, you manifest what it is, you're, where it is you're really supposed to be and what you're really supposed to do. Um, so I've done a lot of things before I came out here. Um, I decided I wanted to be a musician when I was like 19. So I started playing music. I play keyboards and sing. And so um, I hooked up with some friends from high school and, but well, a friend who already had a band. I met his friends. We all became friends. And then I started playing music. Um, and I played in two or three bands for like a few years. And then Michael Franti came to the Philadelphia to record the first Spearhead album, the home album. And me and my best friend had been going down to Rough House Records and like just recording, you know what I mean? Like studio singer. You go down, you're studio singer, you know, it's a job. <laughs> but it's wow. back in the days of like, you know, sit around for 12 hours to record five minutes or whatever. But um, I actually met a lot of people, like a lot of people, you know, while we were hanging out at Rough House. Um, but yeah, we went down there. He wanted her to sing on his album. Well, Joe Niccolo recommended her as a singer for his album, and I was basically the tag along. Um, and then I ended up also singing background. And then when he put his band together, you know, he wanted her especially because she had like the major vocal tracks and she did all the vocal arrangements, but he also needed a background singer and he needed a keyboardist. And I was a two for one. <laughs> so he flew both of us out here and um, I was on tour with Spearhead for two years touring the first album. Wow. <laughs> That's massive. <laughs> you didn't even include m musician in your bio. I know, right? <laughs> it's because I don't, I, 
you know, I put things in there I actively do in this moment. Like I kind of backed up from the industry part of it and I stopped calling myself a musician. <laughs> but as far as you being an artist, that is part of your repertoire. Right? I've recorded quite a few times since then. I recorded an album with Rondo Brothers. Like I've re I'll still record. Like there's a few things I say I'll never do again. And then like somebody comes and it's like, I love you Nas, will you do this thing? And I'm like, okay, so, you know. <laughs> and so now, does that mean that you have issues with boundary setting or is that just that you love being a creator and being part of these projects? You know, it's a little bit of both, but also like, I do really enjoy creating music. It's just not my main focus. So I'll do it if someone pulls me in, like I'll totally do it if someone pulls me in. And like I have an amp and a mic and like, you know, a little equipment here and I record a song every now and then. I have a girlfriend who's a full-fledged musician. Whenever we get together, we create music. It just happens. That's like part of our friendship. But strictly on my own, it's not my focus anymore. <laughs> but collaboration is sometimes the best way to get your best stuff out. Well, that's how you get me in a studio, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in the South, grew mm -hmm. up in the South, right? Yes. What was, what was it you were following when you were moving? Because you were in Philadelphia, you ended up in California eventually. Uh, what, were, what were you following? Um, so... It was basically a bunch of family stuff. I moved around with a lot of different parts of my family growing up. Um, and my grown sister raised me mostly from when I was five to when I was like 15. But I lived with a lot of different relatives. Like um, my mother was much older because I was adopted and she was sick like most of my life. Um, she died when I was 16, but like most of my life she was sick. and so she sent me to various relatives. So like I lived in Florida for a while till I was like one and a half. And then my aunt sent me back and then I went to New York to live with my sister and her first husband. And then they got divorced and sent me back. And then I went out to a farm in South Carolina to live with my aunt. And then she got sick and sent me back. And then I went to Atlanta to live with my sister. You know what I mean? So I moved around a lot. I kind of grew up nomadic. Um, and then I moved to Philly when I was 15 to live with my grandparents um, because basically my sister was moving back to South Carolina and she gave me a choice and she was like, you can either come back to South Carolina with me or you can go to Philadelphia to live with your grandparents. And I had spent enough time in a podunk town to last me. Like all I wanted to do was leave South Carolina. That's just all I wanted to do. And the thought of going back was just like, I'll go anywhere else. <laughs> so, and I also moved to Philly to be closer to New York, because I've always been a performing artist. Like in Atlanta, I went to a performing arts high school. When I moved to Philly, I ended up going to a performing arts high school. And New York is right there. And so I figured that would be convenient <laughs> on my way to California, <laughs> basically. Yeah, you know, I think you and I share a couple things in common. I've moved around the country all my life for the most part. So how do you feel that that the traveling colored your outlook? Well, first of all, I think it prepared me for touring. I think that um, because Spearhead, like I remember that, that year, the hardest working band, there was three hardest working bands. There was 
who are hardest touring bands. There was Warren G, Aerosmith, and then us. Cause we like hella toured. We were in a different place every night. Like we do a North American tour and we'd hit, you know, 56 dates in 60 days with like three travel days and one day off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in a different place every single day. Like, and I think I make the comparison to my best friend who is in the band with me because she didn't like, she didn't enjoy touring well at all. You know what I mean? She felt uprooted. She didn't like the different changes because we were in different places. And for me, it was like another adventure. It was like my childhood. It was like, wow, let's go someplace else. Like I was down. Um, but for her, she'd been in the same place her whole entire life. And so to be in a different place all the time just kind of really wore her out. Um, and in that way, I think that it was very helpful in prep. But also, I think, you know, just personally, it's given me, I think one reason why people don't improve their lives or try and, and get to a happier place is because they're afraid of change. And it doesn't matter if the results of the change will be positive. It's the change part. It's like, yeah, but it'll change. And I'm really comfortable here. And even though it like sucks, I know it. You know what I mean? And I think that being able to like lift yourself up from one place easily and just be someplace else with a whole new set of, of parameters, it, I know for me, it made me less averse to change and, and new things. So I'll tell you my age. I never tell anyone my age. <laughs> but I'll tell you my age. I'm 51. And <laughs> yet, yet another, you know, it just, it sucks being white sometimes. <laughs> Without having all, you know, that, that melanin, like we crack very easily as we get older. And every day I'm looking in the mirror going like, really? Another one? <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> Having children adds extra years to very quickly <laughs> lack of sleep. But that sort of touring, though, for, you know. It does. Sure. It touring does. adds a lot of age. You're like, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> well, you, yeah. you certainly don't look 51. You look fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm very glad. jealous. Thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, at 50, last October, I did my first stand-up ever. I like decided I want. How did this happen? Um, I've been talking about it for a few years because I've been hosting shows and emceeing for like 20 years. And I'm funny. And, but um, I've never really ventured into stand-up comedy. <laughs> the reason actually that I wanted to venture into stand-up comedy is because <laughs> I felt like as a performer, I could do that until I die because you don't have to be pretty and young to be a comedian. Like I look at mom's Mabley, she was old and toothless and she was still funny and working. And I figured that was one profession I could always have. And so a friend of mine, who's a comedian here, um, put me on to another comedian who does this show called, I think I'd be good at that. And basically they bring a newcomer and a bunch of seasoned comedians together and they help me write my material. And then I headlined. <laughs> And so that was my first experience doing stand-up. But all that to say, like, I started this new thing at 50. 
You know what I mean? Last night, I had my first voiceover class because now that's a new thing I'm starting. And I feel like all that nomadicness really sort of, like I'm not afraid of doing new things and I'm not afraid of change. In the stand-up comedy, I mean, I don't know. First of all, like, that is the final frontier. <laughs> I will, I do not see myself ever going that route because when I was producing burlesque shows, I was, I was producer, director, blah, blah, blah. One of the things I was was the MC. Right. Just that little bit of time in between little routines was nerve wracking enough. And the thought of doing what my professional comedian friends do, which is they constantly have pieces of paper in their back pocket where they're writing these new comedy ideas out. And they all tell you, you have to fail and fall on your face for about three years before you can really figure it out. No way. I'm done. <laughs> I'm not even starting. Like, <laughs> well, like you, you know, I emceed, have emceed for years and comedy was daunting. Like I love emceeing. I swear to God, I feel like I'm not doing shit. I'm just standing there like basically saying things off the top of my head. And, you know, a lot of times it's funny, but every now and then like the, the joke hits the floor but the cool, comforting thing about emceeing is that it's not about me. I'm just there to facilitate. So if you don't think it's funny, that's fine. Coming up to the stage next is Isaac. So enjoy him, you know what I mean? But the thing with stand-up, it's like, you don't think this is funny? Well, awesome. No one's coming to save me. So I guess I better keep going. <laughs> right? What were you in the middle of? And where did that put you in the quarantine? Where do you see yourself? once we get back to some sense of human normalcy? Basically, I had all these gigs booked um, and, and plans and financial plans for the money that would ensue. Um, and also, like I said, I was just starting to get, like I'd done a couple of comedy open mics and was gaining my confidence and had plans to like perform at this other open mic the following week and really just go into it. And I was like, I've started, yay, I'm going on an adventure. And then the adventure like totally got cut short, um, which kind of left me at home. Like, what do I do? Cause all the gigs were canceled. In a way it was good because um, it forced me to really like get back into my writing. I actually developed a meditative practice and an exercise routine and like totally, you know, picked up some, like started doing visualization and manifestation. So I kind of went into a spiritual route sort of at the beginning. I was like, well, I'll get into myself and see what that's about. Cause here I am with myself, not doing anything. And so I've still been like, I, I host a regular weekly open mic since like the beginning of the, the shelter in place. And then now I'm getting all these different gigs because everybody's like figuring it out. They're like, okay, we can do this. It's online. And then this voiceover class is online. And so that's convenient. So I kind of feel like I'm right where I'm supposed to be. You know what I mean? I do, yeah. Oakland is your cousin's good-natured kind of ghetto crackhead girlfriend. The one he cheats on all the others with in between violent breakups and smoldering makeups. The one who's your favorite, making you something to eat because y'all are both up at 3 a.m. because neither y'all could sleep. Oakland offers you a hit off her pipe. You shake your head. She giggles. 
baby, this is just some weed. I'm about to take my ass to bed. You doze off on the love seat, dreams filled with staccato gunshots and circle eights and side street intersections. Oakland doesn't mean to be a hoe. Existence has brought her down. That'll happen after a while around predominantly brown folks. She loves to kick it with big spenders and those who like to build. Her aspirations are Brooklyn size. Her suitors come and go. Your cousin doesn't care because half the time he doesn't know. Her glittering gold grin glinting off her tears like Lake Merritt in the sunshine, blinding everyone to her own loneliness and despair. Finding love at the liquor store in a pack of top ramen and some cheap beer. Oakland will rip off her wig and snatch out her earrings just so she can have your back. What she lacks in table manners, she makes up for in leonine protection, still searching for her place in this world, still hoping for inexpensive affection. Oakland will pick your daughter up from jail where your ass sits arrested at four in the morning. Oakland can't afford your bail, but she'll try her best to secure you a street loan and well, she might have to sell all your shit while you're gone, but you'll forgive her. She'll soon be coming around the corner in your cousin's beat up scraper, bringing blunts and smiles and hugs and all the other comforts of home. Thank you so much. Have there been trying times for you or have you been able to easily slip into this positive? No, and I still have my days. I've had to limit the amount of news media information that i take in especially like this year what's up with 2020 like it's some crazy ex-boyfriend that keeps stalking you even though you have a restraining order like i don't know what's up with this year and it's been quite the year and it's always you know i do take like breaks from it where i don't watch any news um but then i come back and it's like a series of events happened while you were gone. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, it makes me want to go hide somewhere, but then I can't because I need to know what's going on. So balancing that has actually been the biggest challenge. I feel like I live in bizarro world because everything is uncertain. And then we have that president that just does stuff and nobody does anything. And so then he does more stuff. And you're like, like I've been incredulous at the things he just keeps going and keeps getting away with. And I'm like, what the hell? No one's stopping you? And I can't. I'm just a regular little old citizen. So yeah, I, I have to sort of monitor my intake of all of that. Because that, that'll do it. That'll snatch the days. You talked about 2020 being this bad uh, ex-boyfriend that's re-entering your life. But this really has the potential, I think, I feel, to be like a... Um, a springboard towards this paradigm shift, which, is ha which has been happening, uh, of, of people awakening. But my outlook is colored a lot by the fact that I am a spiritual person and a former political activist. Mm -hmm. do, you think, do you think that we truly have the potential to, to have an awakening as, a, as a, a species right now? Or do you think that things could pretty easily slip right back into the old fashioned version of normal? What do you, what do you think? To tell you the truth, I don't think we'll ever be the same. Like, I don't think anything can really slip back into the old version of normal just because, and to tell you the truth, I've been thinking that this whole presidential administration, um, Donald Trump 
sort of set an atmosphere for a lot of people's ugly to just come bubbling up, like in all sorts of ways, racially, gender wise, like, you know, people's real sort of selves just, you know, because he opened that door. He was basically like, be your, your, you know, dysfunctional evil self in public and I'll celebrate it. And so a lot of people that otherwise would have at least tried to be polite or PC, let their freak flag fly. And I think part of that is why we're here now. I don't think we can go back. I think just on a personal level, people have discovered too much about people who they thought were friends or their close family or whatever throughout this, who have responded or reacted in certain ways. Like I know friends of mine on Facebook that are like, yeah, I ain't talking to my aunt no more. And I have never not talked to my aunt, but she said some bullshit that I didn't even know she thought, you know, because this is bringing that out. Um, I do think, you know, 2020, you know, it feels like, you know, <laughs> a whack boyfriend, but I've always liked challenges, even in school. Like I always like the hard that like makes you sweat. Cause once I get to the end of it, I feel accomplished and I feel like I've learned something. And I feel also like 2020 is that thing. It's like, yeah, it's hard to see all this bubble up at the same time, but I like the fact that it's here that we can look at it and actually do something as opposed to like, when it's latent and it's just implied and it's so hard to fight the monster that you can't see. But <laughs> these monsters are burying their teeth. They're like, yeah, I'm a monster. So what? And you're like, great, you've identified yourself. That's awesome. We're coming to get you. <laughs> and I don't think we can go back from that. Like I thought about that the other day. I was talking to a friend who basically brought up sort of the same question. Like, you know, there's another administration, you know, will people go back? And I'm like, people can't go back. Because now your neighbor showed himself to be a racist asshole. So then next year, when there's a different president and a different atmosphere, it's not like he can be like, so, you know, I was just kidding, right? <laughs> you know, I'm not really that type of person, right? You can't go back. Like, you know what I mean? So I don't, I do think that there will be change. I honestly, I'm still sort of trying to figure out exactly where that's going to go. I think that, um, Things sort of rise like a tsunami and then they settle down into an actual like workable plan. Like I kind of feel like that's what's happened and, and kind of to an extent is still happening with me too. It's just like, everybody's a rapist. Okay, let's figure out, you know, the parameters of what that is and you know what I mean? And I feel like with racism in general, that's how it's going to be. Like right now it's like, every racist must be rooted out. And at some point, hopefully we'll calm down and be like, okay, let's be constructive and actually like logical and figure this out. So yeah, all that to say, nah, we're not going back. <laughs> Those of us of a conscience are, are going through this, just a mixed bag of so many different feelings and emotions uh, and potential changes that, that could take effect, but it is new and anything new, anything fresh is not always accurate like you're mm -hmm. saying with, you know, with labels and then eventually it subsides, you know, Christopher Columbus, you could say, Hey, pioneer, murderous genocidal pioneer. <laughs> you know, so. Nizella, I really do love your speaking and I do love the, your, your energy. You talked about how there's 
uh, a perspective change there's a possibility of change with the protests in that like there's already been like a bit of change you know we've talked about how minneapolis is defunding their police and they're talking about how new york is is changing their reform like a lot of change has come from the protesting and that and i feel like a lot of people uh sort of are waiting for like a bigger change or rather are waiting for something that will make the definitive action you know you talked about the civil rights movements and that you talked about how there are moments in history where people allow things to pass them by and i feel like that's a very good parallel to today because there is an illusion of what it means to be an american and what it means to be someone who contributes to an altruistic cause you're right like trump trump honestly has emboldened these people to say you know what i can say a bit more push the envelope into a mile and see where that takes me one last question i have as a black artist how would you say that your experience as a well as a, a black American artist, how has that been different for you? Have you noticed that being different than your non-black artist counterparts? <sighs> that is an interesting question. So I kind of have a perspective from both coasts because I started out on the East Coast and then I came here. Um, and to tell you the truth, it's very different in the two places. Um, on the East Coast, when I was a musician, I was in um, two different bands where me and two of my friends were the only Black people in, like, a 10-piece band. And even though the band members were friendly to us, like, you know, they were, they were cool with us. We were in a band. Like, we were friends. Um, they didn't consider us when booking gigs. And so we ended up booking gigs, like, out in white areas that were really racist where people treated us like without knowing who we were, like they said to our bass player, Mike, who's black, you know, they thought he was there to fix the air conditioning. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I remember a couple of times like going to places and they thought that I was there to like, you know, I come in to like play a gig and they tell me they're not hiring. And I'm like, um, I don't want to be, I mean, why wouldn't you? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and so a lot of my experiences there, um, because it's, it's not as sort of integrated as California is, even though California is kind of like in the middle, they call it Calabama, but, um, in the metro areas of California, it is pretty like, you know, there's fewer of us, but there's more sort of voluntary diversity, I guess I would call it. Um, Oh, here's an interesting thing because, and I think part of it is also my appearance. I'm not a light-skinned, biracial-looking Black woman. I'm a, a Black, Black, you know, looking Black woman. And so um, there's almost a fetishness to it. Like, there's things I know that I've gotten because I showed up and I was Black and they were like, you're really Black we could use a really black person in this show. So it's you, you know what I mean? So that's what I've experienced a lot of about here is that I've been, you know, the black addiction. I've been the black addition to the show or I'm a twofer. I'm the black female addition to the show. Um, I've definitely had that happen or I've had people want me to MC a show or be a major part of a show so that they can look diverse within that organization or themselves. 
Um, so that's an interesting sort of dynamic to come 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 against. There's yeah, there's a uh, a friend of mine <clears throat> here in New York that she is a an actress, comedian, producer. She she does a lot. She's a part of a couple. Uh, she and John Frieda uh, are a mixed couple that have been in New York for a long, long time. So having them on the show, I got to get her perspective on some things. And she, she was talking about the same thing with, uh, you know, this is, this is my, my black female friend that speaks four languages. Did you know that? <laughs> she speaks four languages. And right. so it's, I, I mean, that's kind of like the, I don't know. My, my thoughts are that it's the, the uncomfortable but positive side of, uh, cult cultural integration, right? Would you agree or no? Um, it can be if it's genuinely them wanting to like actually genuinely integrate and actually genuinely be diverse as opposed to we want to look like we do. You know what I mean? Um, well, then you can like, see that right uh, now with, with you know, NASCAR and everybody are, are saying, see, we're on the same page. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, a lot of corporations are doing that now. And, and that's what I mean by like, when the cameras look away, because it's really easy to change a flag or put out a statement and say, it's a lot harder to restructure your company so that it's like diverse or, you know what I mean, racially sound or change your policies so that they're not, you know, racist or discriminatory like that's an internal reorganization so that's what i that's what i meant by we'll see within organizations if this actually causes change as someone who has been aware of my privilege for i'm 46 so i would say i've been aware of my privilege for half of my life mm -hmm. um and a spiritual awakening and a political awakening is pretty much what set that in motion uh, to, so that I had self-awareness. And that's something you talked about people being averse to change. And in the theater community, I have dear, dear friends who have gone to posting on social media saying like, I am not going to apologize for being white. I don't know why everybody's thinking that I'm some, some kind of villain now, simply because I'm not saying black lives matter. I mean, they, they have no self-awareness yet. And that's the change, that's the struggle, is that we're all feeling the struggle. Even people who are not of conscience are feeling the struggle. And they're, they're, the way they're experiencing it is like, look, things have been this way my whole life. And you, other people, have been trying to get in to my comfort zone, and that's not comfortable. So that's more of the privilege. Bauer is just trying to interject, when you're used to privilege, equality looks like oppression. Exactly. White people don't think of themselves as an ethnic race. Like you don't have to, you grow up, you're just the norm. You're just, you're, you're the standard. And then everything else is a very, like a, a deviation from that standard. So then everybody else is other. And that's, that's no less proven to me than how just calling someone white has become an insult. Like I've read entire blogs on how white woman is just this huge slur and, you know, <laughs> calling, some, calling someone white is the new N word. And I'm like, really, where are we? Like, I don't, okay. <laughs> like, I mean, I can't even be mad. I'm just incredulous. I'm like, <laughs> what does that even mean? Like, what are you talking about? What the 
it's fascinating hearing like other honestly like black people sort of echo the sort of sentiment that you have because you talked about how there's subtle racism and while we do try to rationalize these excuses but we accept that because we know where we are black we are people who have to think about uh making other people feel comfortable because the uh, the idea of 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 being coddled or the idea of being uncomfortable like it's a very cultured reasoning it's like all right well i don't want to be called a racist even though i have racist values so it's a very sensitive minefield to navigate especially as minorities you know white people do have their own battle to fight and i feel like as we do sort of have this harmony of of, of strife that we enter an area where we can all be accepted but it takes all our parts. You know, my fight might not be yours, Nazila. My fight might not be yours. My fight might not be yours, Salim. But as so long as we are, are all striving and agreeing against the idea of oppression, then we are fighting for the same thing. And I feel like that, that, that optic is what we all need to look at. Because if we do have that bigger scope, then we're not looking at this narrow-minded, missing the trees for the forest sort of thought process. But I don't want to take up too much time. I, I do, you know me, Isaac, I rant, so I'm going to stop now. But yeah, go on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.